welcome to the House of Lords podcast. This month, we speak to Lord Kirkhope of Harrogate about his experiences as a whip and as a rebel, plus updating the Queen on what's happening in Parliament. Welcome to our March episode. This month, Matt and I spoke to Lord Kirkhope of Harrogate, who's a Conservative member of the House of Lords. Before that, he also served as a local councillor, a member of the Commons, where he was a whip and later a minister, and also as an MEP. In our interview, we discussed the changes he recently put forward to the Nationality and Borders Bill. As well as this, we discussed the differences between his experiences in the Lords and the Commons and his experience as a whip in the House of Commons, which also included a time as Vice Chamberlain of the Household. This is the MP in the Commons who's tasked with writing daily to the monarch, letting them know what's happening in Parliament. We also talk about the process of legislation through the House of Lords and how he's brought his experiences as a former immigration minister to proceedings. Here's what he had to say. Hello, I'm Timothy Kirkhope, Lord Kirkhope of Harrogate. I've been in the House of Lords since uh, 2016, sitting on the Conservative benches. And before that, I had 17 years as a member of the European Parliament representing Yorkshire. And before that, I was 10 years in the House of Commons, a member of Parliament for Leeds, ending up as a minister at the Home Office, looking after immigration and asylum. So I've had quite a long political career in these three places. You recently said that you are one of, if not the only person alive to have served in four legislatures as a representative of the UK. As you just said, that's local government as an MP and an MEP before, of course, joining the House of Lords. I was wondering if you could start off by sharing your thoughts on the difference between them as a member. Yes, I mean, they each have their own flavours. Of course they do. Quite right. I didn't mention in my introduction that I had been a member of a county council, which I was back in the 1980s. Of course, it is a legislative body, but only at a level which deals with local local laws rather than uh, national laws. Uh, so that is the big difference in a way. When you go to the European Parliament, the European Parliament deals essentially with European legislation that affects all the members, as we used to be, of the EU. Um, so it's a very wide um, area covered. In the House of Commons, of course, it's national legislation. And even there, of course, we have interesting situations where Scotland has its own devolved parliament and Wales. And of course, certain things are therefore the competence of those assemblies rather than the House of Commons nowadays. Um, So there are considerable differences. But I think what is common is the scrutiny which is deployed in each of these places. And I would say without hesitation, I think the European Parliament certainly was very strong on scrutiny. But one of the attractions about now being in the House of Lords is that of the two chambers of the British Parliament, it is the House of Lords, which in my opinion and from my experience now, does better and more full scrutiny of legislation than the House of Commons. 
And in the week we're recording, the Nationality and Borders Bill is being scrutinised by the House of Lords at committee stage. Uh, that's where members go through the bill line by line. Um, you spoke yesterday about some of the changes you put forward. Um, do you just want to explain a little bit about what those are? Well, certainly. First of all, of course, this is um, a bit like deja vu, this particular legislation, because when I was in the Home Office as the minister responsible for our borders, for asylum, for immigration, I had to be involved in quite a lot of legislation so to me, this arriving on the scene was something I really wanted to get my teeth into. Also, perhaps to offer some of my experiences, even though they were some years ago. And uh, that is the reason why I decided to put forward amendments. One of the proposals of the government was to have an arrangement whereby we can offshore asylum applications so that we can actually move asylum applicants to another country somewhere else in the world where their applications can be dealt with before they're dealt with here. And I did point out, very politely, as one always does, to the government, that I had looked at this very thoroughly, not only as a minister, but also subsequently as a chair of a commission that our party set up about 20 years ago now, uh, as to whether or not offshoring was a practical proposition. We had enough nerve then to suggest possibly islands around our own country, in other words, within our own territorial jurisdiction, would be what we termed offshore locations. We didn't have enough nerve to go further and suggest that this could be outside of territorial jurisdiction, as the present government is suggesting. Countries hundreds or thousands of miles away, which may or may not have any relevance or connection to the people who are applying for refuge. So I put down an amendment suggesting the government forgot about this idea, as one expects at a committee stage. The minister explained why the government thought it was a good idea. And uh, we are now where we are, waiting perhaps for a report stage where I intend, if the government doesn't change its position, I intend on bringing the matter back. I hope the government will see sense and we end up with a more practical application of um, asylum regulations. You mentioned there the Nationality and Borders Bill, moving on, of course, to report stage. I wondered if, for anyone that doesn't know perhaps about a bill's passage through the Lords... <laughs> If you could hmm. tell us a little bit about, you know, sort of the main differences between uh, committee stage and report stage. Certainly. I mean, first of all, I've got to say that the way in which the Lords looks at legislation pretty well mirrors what happens in the Commons. So the stages are almost exactly the same, except the end product in the Lords um, is a little different and therefore the relationship back to the Commons. I'll just explain this, though. A bill may well have gone through the Commons, it's gone through its stages, it is then sent to the House of Lords for our review. Um, it's introduced, and then we have a second reading. The second reading allows people to talk generally about the subject in the bill. At that point, it's not usual for people to talk about any amending to it. They talk about what's wrong with it, and they give their own personal recollections. And some people actually do go on too long talking about their lives, but second reading is an opportunity for a more general debate. Um, the bill then goes from second reading and awaits its turn in the timetable to come to what is called committee stage. In the meantime, anyone who's been on second reading involved is entitled at that point to put down amendments. And the amendments are put down for the um, committee stage and debated. And usually they've got a few signatures to them. One person will promote something, but he usually goes around and says, would other people sign up? 
my, my, my amendments yesterday, one was a cross-party amendment and another one was a conservative amendment because all the people signing up to it were conservative peers, as it happens. But you get your signatures, you put these things down on the order paper, and then you come to the committee stage in which the amendments are then debated. We do not vote normally on that stage. We debate them. We ask the minister to review them and consider what changes she or he may want to make or the government can make. When we finish the um, amendments, gone through them all, debated them all, the minister goes away, we go away. We then have discussions with the minister or the minister with us. And we get the impression whether or not the government is likely to concede anything. If not, on those areas that they do not, we then come to what is called report stage. Report stage, which is usually two or three weeks or maybe longer after the committee stage, those amendments can be relayed if the person concerned really wants to. And it is at report stage that the minister either concedes or does not. But if they do not, then that is the point at which votes are taken. And the House then has changed effectively the bill in its hands. What then happens is that the bill goes back to the Commons. And the Commons sees those amendments because the bill has been amended. They then are asked by government and the Commons to decide whether they want to agree with the Lords, those amendments remain, or whether they want to overturn them. And this is where it becomes interesting, because more often than not, the Commons will then be whipped to overturn our amendments and go back to what the government originally proposed. We normally, when we get a bill back again then, will accept that. We have to then say yes or no, we'll accept the fact that the Commons has overturned us or has supported us. It is very rare for the House of Lords then to again overturn the will of the Commons. Because the one thing I appreciate, everybody appreciates, is that the House of Commons is the elected chamber and it has priority and primacy in relation to legislation. So unless there is an issue which is not terribly important, I put it that way, it doesn't matter one way or the other we are unlikely to continue to resist the government's proposals. We certainly do not, if a matter has been in the manifesto of a governing party in the election, it is most unusual for the House of Lords to try and overturn a bill or parts of a bill that are following the manifesto promises. And that is how it works. Then, of course, ultimately, there is a third reading when the thing is completed and the bill is then passed and goes to royal assent. That's the process. We have had a thing called ping pong, which is where we are in disagreement, and we've decided to stick our necks out and keep on disagreeing with the House of Commons. So it goes back to them, they reverse our views, comes back to us, we reverse their views. Ping pong can only go on for a certain amount of time, and yet again, we... I think, are constitutionally bound to ultimately give way to the Commons if it persists in what it wants. And that is why the system works. If we had equal powers and we continued to employ those and to dispute the Commons, then I think that would create a crisis. And it would also put in question, in my view, the status of the two Houses of Parliament. Because they have to work together and the joy about an appointed chamber, as the House of Lords is, 
And it must always understand that it is not an elected chamber. It is there to reform. It is there to actually revise and to suggest to government changes where appropriate using its expertise and, you know, and its knowledge of the subject. Obviously, you mentioned you're a member of a Conservative Party in the Lords. Can you tell us a bit about the sort of differences, I guess, between being a Commons backbencher and a Lords backbencher in terms of how free you feel to push for these changes? I mean, tactics-wise, is it different being a government backbencher than perhaps being even an opposition backbencher? Well, I was quite fortunate in the Commons that I was only a backbencher for nearly two years because I became a whip fairly early on in my parliamentary career. And I remained in the whip's office under Margaret Thatcher and John Major for five years. So I have, if you like, a sort of whip's mentality to some extent. And in those days, we were very hard pressed. The Conservative Party was hard pressed. We had virtually no majority at all after Margaret Thatcher went. In, in the earlier part of John Major's time, we were under great pressure. And of course, we were trying to deal with some very complicated and controversial treaties, including the Maastricht Treaty, which was the one that confirmed our membership of the European Union. Um, so I was a whip, and my job was to make sure that legislation got through. Here I have, an, ironically, I suppose, a situation with all those years in between. I'm a backbencher in the House of Lords for the Conservatives, and uh, what I've got to watch out for now is the operation of the whips. So, I, I, but, but I think it's quite useful for me to understand the mentality of whips and to have been one for so long, so I know roughly where they're coming from, what is tolerated and what is not tolerated. And I think the point about it, looking at it from a whip's perspective, any, any measures that are going on, what a whip does not like is to be unaware of the intentions of a backbencher. We always felt in the Commons, certainly, that if somebody told us they were going to do one thing and then they did the opposite when it came to voting on important measures, that was literally the worst offence. If someone said to you, I'm sorry, I really am not going to vote for this, okay, you might want to argue with them quite a while, and we did, and try to persuade them. But at the end of the day, at least we had some clear knowledge that they were going to do a certain thing. We could then adjust the um, attendance and all the rest of it to cover it. And so that is the big offence. Um, I don't rebel very much. I did rebel on Europe. Uh, in the Lords when I was first there, <clears throat> and uh, because because I am a pro-European, and uh, although I'm supposed to have got over Brexit, I keep being told this by some of my friends, um, I nevertheless felt there were certain things about the withdrawal arrangements where we needed to put ourselves in a position where we would have good, friendly relations with Europe in the future, and I felt some of that legislation was a little bit antagonistic and that's where I rebelled and I voted. But by and large, I'm pretty loyal. I mean, I'm <clears throat> no intention of, uh, uh, you know, being a regular rebel on everything just for the sake of it. It's pointless anyway, because I think you have to think of it in terms of individual items of business. But by and large, I'm happy enough with the programme. That's a really interesting answer. You know, you're certainly looking to sort of improve legislation, aren't you, rather than seek trouble, particularly being your government backbencher. You're sat on the Conservative benches in the Lords. So it's really interesting to hear the sort of rhythms of Parliament and the sort of dialogue that goes on behind the scenes, which we don't see, obviously, because, you know, it's not in Hansard, it's uh, not filmed. So I was just wondering if you could say a bit more about what kind of reaction you get from WIPS offices when you as a Conservative backbencher are putting down amendments. 
Are they on the phone oh, well, asking you for, you know, what you're seeking to achieve and things like that? Yeah, a little bit of that, yes. Um, and I'm quite able to explain that. Um, but, but the way I do it, or try to do it, I, I don't do it in a confrontational way. I mean, the two speeches I've made so far in amendments uh, on the Nationality uh, and Borders Bill have been hoping to help the government and explaining in a polite manner that one or two of the ideas that they are trying to pursue at the moment perhaps haven't been sufficiently thought through and offering an opportunity to the government to think again in the hope, although I'm sure it's, I'm not confident I've been able to persuade them, in the hope that they will come back at the next stage of the legislative procedure, the report stage, with some changes, which more likely to meet what I suggested. If that isn't the case, then of course we put the amendments down again, and if necessary, we have to vote on them, and that this is the way the process works. But I would say to you, you know, there's been a lot of controversy recently about whips and whipping, particularly in the Commons. Um, whenever I go anywhere and say that uh, in my time in the whips office there, we operated like a social services operation, looking after the interests of our members as much as getting business through, I always get loads of peals of laughter from every audience I tell this to when I suggest that we could be anything other than thugs, um, which we certainly were not. We, we were doing things by persuasion, friendly persuasion and uh, argument. And I think that is inevitably anyway, the best way in which you get results. Behaving in a high handed manner as a whip, getting really rough with people um, seems to me to be a failure on the part of whips and likely to result in failure in terms of getting what you want. We, we're, we're obviously speaking the uh, day after the Nationality and Borders Bill. The House was sitting incredibly late into the night. Well, you um, say the day after, actually, we're talking on the very day. Same, that yeah. 3.20 in the morning. Yeah, 3.20, exactly. I was going to say I was very much tucked up in bed at that time, unlike a number of members who were working on that bill. But, I um, wasn't I there mean, either, actually, by then, I must admit. I was watching it on my iPad until the iPad ran out of juice, <laughs> ran out of battery. I was just going to ask around the sort of longer time frame to consider bills in the Lords compared to, say, with the Commons. And um, just to ask you about how you feel about, you know, does that give you a real opportunity to get under the skin of issues raised in draft legislation because there is a bit more time? Yes, but again, you know, on very controversial bills, very complex and controversial bills like the nationality, like the health one, I don't think myself that enough time is given. And this leads to frustrations, as we actually saw last night in, in, in the chamber. There was a breakdown, really, in terms of the relations between um, government and uh, speakers by about 11 o'clock last night, where the government clearly was saying, look, we're not getting on fast enough here. We've got to get this through. This is very important. When other people who were raising matters, uh, I think probably legitimately, felt that uh, they needed the time. And why couldn't we give another day or whatever? But the government were determined to keep to a timetable. Hence, of course, the government insisted and the matter went on until it actually did conclude, which, as I say, was 3.20 in the morning. That is unlikely now to happen in the House of Commons. Mm. In, in my day as a whip there, and when we were passing business in the 90s, we did quite a lot of overnight stuff. I mean, I remember many occasions. Maastricht was one, of course. We were there all night. And once you get a past, I think it's nine o'clock in the morning, the next day's business is ended. 
Mm. You don't have the next day's business. I mean, all of that was going on then, but it doesn't now because I think probably quite sensibly, uh, because of the pressures on members of parliament, their families and all that, and the responsibilities of members of parliament, um, it was decided that uh, apart from special circumstances, the House of Commons would rise in the reasonable time in the evening. And therefore, we don't tend to get that. But the House of Lords has no such um, limitations. I mean, it's quite a lot of stamina. When you take a look at the list of Lords and what they've done in their lives, it's hardly surprising that they show these displays of stamina. They've obviously, you know, most of them had considerably pressured lives and very important positions, so seem to be able to take it. And particularly if we're dealing with important matters, it's terribly important that they should be able to use that expertise and bring it to bear on the legislation we're discussing. On a slightly different topic, I can't not ask you about your time as a whip and your role as the vice chamberlain of the household when you're in the Commons. Some people might know that is the role responsible for writing to the Queen about um, what's happening in Parliament. And also as well is typically the person taken hostage before state opening. So my first question is, did you get taken hostage and what was that like? Uh, And otherwise, what's it like being a member of the royal household for that purpose? And writing about what's going on in Parliament. Yes, I feel I'm, it's not false pretenses exactly, because I was the vice chamberlain to the household, but I was only the vice chamberlain for a period of time that did not include a state opening. Ah. I was moved to the Home Office quickly, ahead of time, so therefore I only did that job as vice chamberlain, which is, which for a very short time really, not I think a month or two or three months, something like that. But the interesting thing about that job is it is, a person who is, let me put it this way, in the whip's office, there's a sort of a, um, seniority. So the third or fourth person in the whip's office from the chief whip is the person that gets the position of vice chamberlain in the household. And yes, indeed, writes a note. And, and my predecessor, I asked him some advice. I said, what do you write for her? He said, well, the important thing to do is not to give her another copy of Hansard, Her Majesty likes to hear about the fun that goes on in Parliament. So make sure what you write is going to amuse her. And, you know, that's quite a, a, what can I say, quite a challenge. How are you going to amuse the monarch? So I, um, and I did it longhand. I did it neatly. And she only wanted one side of A4. I've been told this. And it had to be ready for 4.15. That sounds pressure. On the sitting day. Oh, yes. So I went down to my desk and um, started scribbling away the first one I sent. I won't go into the detail of who I talked about, but there were a couple of troublesome MPs at that time, not in my party, <clears throat> who were making a great fuss about something or other. And I told Her Majesty about it. And I sort of put a kind of little joke in, you know, once again, Mr. So-and-so is causing hassle here in Parliament, Your Majesty. And that sort of thing. <clears throat> and uh, I sent it in, and I sort of wondered to myself, good grief, she won't be reading it. No one actually reads this. And uh, I kept on sending them in for several days, and nothing, you know, I thought, well, you know, they're probably being put somewhere, probably the waste paper basket. But um, I then got a note back from one of her officials saying that Her Majesty had read with great interest the um, notes, and particularly amused by my references to Mr. Senso. So I thought, ooh, I've clicked. And, and, and of course, I also had to physically meet Her Majesty as well. I had to put my proper garb on, you know, my tails, 
and I had to carry my vice chamberlain's wand, which is it, it, it's it's very like a, a, a cue, a snooker cue. You hold it in your right hand, and you and you, and you when you're in her presence, you have to juggle with this thing in one hand while you have parchment in the other for her to sign. I had to take things for her to sign. I remember a double taxation relief order, which needed to have Elizabeth R on it. So I took it to her uh, in her private rooms at Buckingham Palace. And uh, I, I must admit, I, I did wonder after that whether, you know, I was quite touched by being apparently alone. I'm not sure I was actually, but I think there were others somewhere. But uh, being with Her Majesty while she signed her signature on something and handed it back to me was quite a quite an experience. That's really interesting. Uh, again, unseen parts of parliamentary work. So uh, thank you for yes. that. You've well, clearly had some great experiences in, in Parliament. And I just want to ask, um, have you got a sort of favourite moment from your time in the Lords? Oh, in the Lords? Well, I've only been there a shortish time, haven't I? I've been there five years. Um, yeah, I mean, I think one of my one of my things that I learned, and I think this is quite important, when you go to the Lords, you think you're clever. That's why you're in the Lords. You think you know everything about a subject. I'm, I'm a lawyer. I thought I knew quite a lot about the law, really. But I've never been what I could describe as an academic lawyer or a judge or anything. I was just a, a I am still a solicitor. Anyway, a case comes up, a, a matter being debated. And I thought I'd be quite clever. So I wrote down a note and I got on my feet and I said, uh, well, I refer you to the case of something versus something, which decided that blah, 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 and this person was innocent and it wasn't going to do anything, whatever it was, wasn't guilty of this. And I thought, that's rather clever. And I sat down. What it taught me, though, was that whenever you do this, there's a speaking list. Always look carefully at who's on the list, but not just the names. What are their categories? What are they? Or what were they? Now, the next name on the list, Lord Walker. If I had thought anything about that name, I would have assumed that he was a peer who had been making crisps. So I didn't bother anyway. I wouldn't have thought, but I didn't. But of course, this Walker happened to be Lord Walker, who had been the principal of the Supreme Court of Justice. And he got up after me and said, well, it's very interesting what the uh, noble lord just said, because... I do recollect this case on which I presided, that he's referred to. And, and although I agree with some of his conclusions, I'm afraid he's missed one of the main points about it. So I was put back in my box, as they say. I was sort of pushed back. And I realized then, if you're going to be clever, A, look at the list, check them out. Who's coming next? Who's going to be cleverer than you? Um, and because we are such a diverse house, much more diverse than the commons in both categories, age, all, all the categories you can think of, we are more diverse and we have more experience of life in so many fields compared with the commons that I think you've just got to understand that, you know, whatever you bring to it, others can bring as much or if not more. Lord Kirkhope, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been a great pleasure and privilege. Thank you very much. And that's it for this episode of the podcast. We'll be back next month with more from the House of Lords. See you then.